Hey, this is Tim McCurdy, and welcome to Vinepair's Cocktail College, a weekly deep dive into classic cocktails that goes beyond the recipe with America's best bartenders. From Falernum to fortified wine, eau de vie to vodka with actual character, we cover a lot of ingredients here at Cocktail College. But you know what we haven't covered yet, listener? Beer. Good old-fashioned malt, water, yeast, and hops. And with good reason. Because nowhere in our trusty 19th century definition of the cocktail do fermented, undistilled products feature. Try telling that to trend-seeking journalists of the early 2010s, though. For the better part of a decade, quote-unquote beer cocktails dangled as this dazzling new hybrid form mixed drinks might take on. It was craft beer meets elevated cocktail culture. At least, that was the idea. But then, well, it never really took off. Here to re-examine that all-but-forgotten period of promise and what might have been driving it is Vinepair's very own contributing editor, Dave Infante. You might be familiar with Dave already as the host of the excellent Taplines podcast, which does weekly deep dives into moments of history and meaningful movements within the beer industry. Consider this then an all vine pair mashup with snake bites, bulldogs, and the much heralded beer cocktail boom. And it's all right here on the Cocktail College podcast. It's our first and likely only ever kegger here at Cocktail College. That's right, folks. His untapped app has more checks than a middling musician still receiving royalties for a 1990s one hit wonder. It's Dave Infante, everyone. Dave. Hey, what up, what up, what up? Welcome, my friend. Where are you joining us from today? I'm, I'm joining us from the the land uh, of appreciating that intro, my friend, my <laughs> colleague, Tim. Thanks so much for having me on Cocktail College. I am a longtime listener, first-time guest, I suppose. And I'm joining from Richmond, Virginia, where uh, you may have heard of it uh, from a, a popular conservative country song that's making the rounds virally as we record this but yeah richmond virginia coming at you uh coming at you live from down south well thank you so much for joining us in the virtual studio today dave you know we're going to do something different here of course this is the first tap lines x cocktail college mashup here but more importantly first time we're covering beer and dave to get us into that topic I want to start by taking it right all the way back to the early 2010s, and more specifically, May of 2011. Frank Bruni is but one month away from being named an op-ed columnist for the New York Times. Having given up his post as the uh, newspaper's restaurant critic, I believe a year or so prior, and I'm not saying that the article we're going to discuss today got him the op-ed gig, but it is a great place for us to start, because it's titled... Cocktails with a beer buzz. Dave, do you remember, where were you at that time? What were you doing uh, while this is all taking place? I assume you probably didn't catch your attention when, when Bruni comes out with this one. Yeah, this was not like my my like JFK assassination or my 9-11. Uh, I don't remember where I was when our buddy Frank dropped this, uh, dropped this bomb <laughs> on the on the culinary uh, and beverage alcohol world, um, but I do remember, of course, in like the decade that would follow, as beer cocktails kind of emerged as this maybe thing, maybe not. Uh, and we'll talk more about like how much of a thing they ever were. Um, I do remember reading this story, and it's it's I think like sort of the highest height that like the concept of of beer cocktails really would ever reach in like mainstream American media. Mm-hmm. And I think there's some accompanying art to that piece. I, I forget the actual copy of it. I read through it recently in preparation for this. The accompanying art seems to suggest something like a michelada. The fact that this publishes in May is probably no coincidence, or maybe it is. But this is the first piece I think you can find when you start to look back in the internet archives of this kind of bubbling trend of beer being seen as a cocktail ingredient or maybe being touted as one. Um, Another one that I think is really pertinent takes place in 2013, a couple of years later. It's called Get Ready for a Beer Cocktail Boom. 
that's run by CNBC and and really kind of us both being writers here. I don't know whether you've read that link, but uh, there, there really is only like one paragraph at the end that doesn't really allude I to it. I loved that. <laughs> that was like the classic a little inside baseball on the media side of things here. Uh, uh, Cocktail College listeners, if you'll indulge me, that is like the classic like writer pitched a headline that they had no like way of substantiating, but it was like all vibes based. And then like his editor was like, Hey, can you like do some reporting on this? And then like all of a sudden the entire premise of the article becomes just a total afterthought. Yeah. He did. Like, he did like 70 words on beer cocktails in like an 800 word article. And the rest is like, Indian Pale Lagers, which is a style of beer I'd completely forgotten about. Session beers. I think there's also something like it's never been a better time to be a beer drinker, which is kind of shuddering to think about now in our current beer landscape. But, you know, this is obviously... Well, that's also like the America is a land of contrasts style lead, right? It's like, oh, it's never been a better time to be a beer drinker. Like, it's like, cool, man. Like, that's not a... That is not like a great way to get people to read this article (laughs) and yet here we are (laughs) and you know like look we both know that two articles doth not make a trend but this i highlight those just in terms of major publications major news outlets to highlight this groundswell of kind of media hype around the beer cocktail Mm. movement that is really does seem to be taking place in the early 2010s or, or it's kind of being i don't know proposed is this trend, right? You know, these things when it comes to media and trends, like it's really interesting. So we cover cocktails, we cover spirits trends here on Cocktail College, but we never cover beer. So I really want to get your take on that. Like, what do you think brings all of these factors together? Is it the fact that maybe craft beer is really starting to hit this crescendo? Cocktail culture has fully cemented itself by this point. Like, mm. how do we arrive at this so-called beer cocktail boom? Yeah, I think so-called is a, is a good sort of qualifier on it because there are sort of these green shoots that appear in major media, right? New York Times in 2011 with, with Frank Bruni, who, by the way, was like a credible like food critic. It's not like he was like a total fucking rube. Um, but obviously like became persuaded that there was kind of a trend there. Then the CNBC piece uh, a few years later, um, I think those are good like data points because yeah, they don't make the trend in and of themselves, but like the fact that this idea of beer cocktails is able to simultaneously like penetrate the upper echelon of certainly New York Times, CNBC, less or so, but like that's establishment media, right? Um, and it's establishment media that, is capable of setting the tone for its readership. It's very influential. And this idea that beer cocktails, you know, sort of represent that beer can be um, this culinary product is that, you know, this more um, higher end product, premiumized product. That's something that I think the craft brewing industry that at that point, you know, early 2010. So, you know, whatever, when we're recording this, that's, roughly like 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more. That was something that the craft beer industry was explicitly pursuing at that point. They wanted very much to be perceived more in the in the world of wine and more in the world of cocktails. And there were a couple reasons for that, Tim. One was that the basic, which is that, you know, beer is kind of always been seen as down market to, you know, cocktails and wine has never been had never at that point been sort of deserving or deserving is probably not the right word, but it never really come in for the serious intellectual scrutiny and rigor as like a product, as a beverage alcohol product, that wine had sort of started to merit by whatever the 70s or so in the United States and, and cocktails had once again begun to merit um, thanks to sort of the classic cocktail revitalization or renaissance or whatever you want to call it in this country. But right, like, so there's there's this, I think, sort of insecurity in the craft brewing industry that in this project at times, like I said, becomes explicit to make it more like these other categories because that's the second piece of the puzzle is that wine and spirits command higher, more premium price points than, than beer has typically been able to. 
And so there's a expedient business reason for it as well, right? If we can figure out how to do some of our volume in higher price point, like sort of call drinks, that opens up new opportunities for the industry in terms of not only placement and, you know, cultural cachet, but also in terms of revenue. Yeah, I think this is a really interesting exploration in terms of trying to figure out, and we won't come up with the answers, but trying to figure out where the fuel for this is coming from, right? Because on the one hand, you could say, like, if this is a big conspiracy, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but if this is a big plan by craft Coordinated beer, effort. Yeah, 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 yeah. by craft yeah, beer right. overall to, you know, what folks in the industry like to, to, to call, you know, gaining more occasions, right? So beer is something you drink on its own, but what if beer can also take its place at the cocktail occasions too, or to your point, pairing with food in place of wine yep. to basically, because, you know, that's the NBC article does highlight that breweries are growing. I think there's 2,500 in the country at the time, which is staggering when you consider we're at what, 9,000 now? So over, yeah, we're, we'll probably close in on 10,000 by the end of 2023. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of runway still there, but basically beer, if this were to come from beer, I think we're saying they're looking for more opportunities for growth or to sustain growth. On the other hand, I don't know, both of us being in editorial, being in media, it kind of does sniff a little bit to me like here's something that a writer came across once or twice and was like, actually, that's interesting. On the one hand, craft beer is trending. On the others, craft cocktails are too why don't we bring them together? And by the way, if we can make a funny headline, if we can make a compelling headline out of it, done, sold, write the article. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I think that's certainly, you know, like I'm never one to, and neither are you to let like the media quote unquote off the hook for their culpability or our culpability in producing and prolonging, you know, trends that maybe are not really trends or never as widespread. I mean, there's a joke in amongst sort of editorial types that uh, the hacky rule of thumb is like a three of anything makes a trend, right? Like you can connect dots that aren't necessarily there. And if you're Frank Bruni and you have one foot, I think that was literally his last column in 2011 um, for like this column that he was doing called the tipsy diaries, um, <laughs> before he moved up to the, to the op-ed pages. So I think like if you've got one foot out the door and your editor needs whatever, you know, 18 column inches and you've been out and about and you've seen some stuff and New York is undoubtedly, you know, and I think indisputably the sort of engine for bona fide legitimate beverage alcohol trends in this country so if you see it in New York and it kind of rates maybe as a, yeah, well, I'll toss off a quick column about it, right? And like in his limited defense, and this is not meant to be like a Bruni like burn session, but like he he notes that WD-50, which was one of the hottest restaurants in the city, um, was doing multiple legitimate, I would call legitimate beer cocktails where they were kind of like flexing gastronomically in a way that had made them so popular and so, you know, sort of renowned on the culinary side. They were doing something similar with beer cocktails. PDT, another extremely pioneering, you know, somewhat pioneering, I think, uh, formative, you know, uh, um, cocktail bar that kind of put the speakeasy, modern speakeasy concept uh, on the map for an entire generation of drinkers. Um, and intrigued an entire generation of drinkers. They were doing ones. So it's not that it wasn't happening to some extent, but I do think that it's one of these like sort of sweet spot stories that's really attractive to, um, you know, this, uh, the, a certain type of journalist who maybe wants to either is, is, you know, surface level or is in over his, his, his or her head in terms of, like the subject matter or whatever, it seems sexy. It, there's there's an interesting story to tell. It seems to track with or comport with some of the broader industry narratives that are currently unfolding. And yeah, I mean, I think the other thing is that these you know beer cocktails do exist and have existed for many, many years. And so this kind of feels like, oh, this is like, a, again, like a 
renaissance of this thing that already existed. And that's like inherently going to be newsworthy to a mainstream journalist who's looking to file copy. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And, <laughs> and and look, let's let's also be a little bit fair to Frank here in a couple of other respects. For the most part, writers don't come up with their own headlines. They might have a say, they might have some input, but they're not going to have the final say on that, right? Uh, although the term beer cocktail is used throughout the piece. But the other one too, and this is a little bit of a spoiler alert for something we're going to cover later in the show, is that he does identify that most of the uh, occurrences that he encounters are basically micheladas or variations of the michelada, <laughs> right? right? right. Yeah, Which yeah. is a classic beer cocktail. You know, if we're willing to, to kind of stretch the definition of that word, I'm happy to hear today, despite recent episodes in this feed. Um, but it is, it is <laughs> probably the only legitimate or one of the only legitimate beer cocktails. And that's what he explores for the most part. I mean, I did find another thing interesting in this article too. And, and you know what, folks, we'll share a link in the description, by the way, if we're going to keep talking about this, of course. But he does talk about the fact that like one advantage beer has an, as an ingredient is that it stretches out a drink, it lowers the ABV, and that's really kind of forward thinking. And it does so without water, yeah. right? It does so by giving a little bit of booze and also flavor. Yeah, I think that like you're right. Like I think that was a good observation. You see it come up more and more. And by the way, like I remember I would get I was getting pitches for beer cocktails from both breweries. I think probably at one point from the Brewers Association itself. I went to a, a beer dinner um, that was hosted by the Brewers Association where like this project was made explicitly clear about sort of making it into a higher price point, uh, you know, more culinary or more like inventive good. So like this was very much like in the ether, right? Um, I think there was maybe something organic about it. And then, you know, who knows where the uptake was exactly. But at some point it became more of a thing that the industry was pushing than that um, drinkers were were go you know going out and asking for actually ordering right and so that's I think like the difference there is that at some point like the you know inflection point hit and there was a ceiling on it and then the industry tried to keep pushing on it and we kind of we kind of find ourselves you know looking back on it and chuckling I think like yeah I think that's like a good and real thing right like you start to see as beer becomes you know, sort of more established in the marketplace. Drinkers understand more about craft beer. You start to see the shift. The drinker that grew up pursuing extremely high ABV, hop forward, you know, uh, India Pale Ales and and uh, uh, barrel aged stouts. They start to age. They maybe age out of that. You know, that high strength. You know, high. ABV experience, they're looking for ways to to experience like beer flavor without having to, you know, be as he drinking as heavily or be as full as they were. On the flip side, we're also seeing right like this is the era of uh, starting, you know, America's like long and growing, I think, love affair with like off proof you know, Italian liqueurs, you know, uh, aperitifs, digestifs, people I don't think are anywhere near in terms of the mainstream at that point are nowhere near what your listeners these days would consider very, you know, sort of standard stuff, right? Like the Aperol Spritz was still like dazzling people. Like I don't think anyone <laughs> knew what Suze was like yeah. in terms of like mainstream drinkers. But like there's also this this growing interest in, okay, what's outside of just foolproof spirit? There's There's flavor experiences there. So I think that's like not a bad observation, right? And again, that's one that's like rooted in both drinking trends in this country and then also beer serving practices in other countries like there is a history to beer cocktails and we know that people are also looking at that point even even 10 years ago are also starting to shift and and look around for lower proof uh, uh drinking experiences so again it fits kind of in that lane i don't i don't hate the thesis mm -hmm. you know I, I do like the fact as well that it's called the beer cocktail boom i mean quite quite how large that boom was 
Uh, we probably will never know without the, the the benefit of time travel machine. But the, the <laughs> with every boom must come a bust. And of course, I think the evidence that this was maybe a trend, a flash in the pan thing, if it ever happened, is the fact that I don't really go to any bars today in New York or beyond and see beer being used as a cocktail ingredient by very serious cocktail programs. I think, I mean, I think there's a great example here for if it were still a thing. So friend of the show, Souther Teague, has a wonderful spot here in New York. Um, it's called And Beer, which is this concept that's like a beer-focused restaurant. And the and part, currently their focus is mushrooms. So it's a mushroom-focused restaurant and beer. And then maybe their focus might change on what the food component is. If you have a look at their drinks list, they have a wonderful selection of beers they have some wines, they have non-alcoholic stuff. There's no cocktails on there, and there's certainly no beer cocktails on there. So I figured that like that's probably good proof that in 2023, if this ever were a thing, if there were a quote-unquote modern classic that came along, um, it didn't cement itself. And I want to put a little asterisk in that and come back a little bit later, because there is a there is a second part to this before the Michelada that I want to get to. Mm. But I want to kind of turn back in history as well and say that like look the drinks that are quoted in these articles are not really cocktails as we think of them today right you know something stirred or shaken or spirit forward they're kind of like mixing a couple of things together but if we do want to explore kind of mixed drinks using beer using only fermented products there are a couple of classics in the beer category again I think it's a stretch to call them a cocktail but you know your shandies, your rattlers, your snake bites, half yep. and half, which yep. some folks will know under another name. Do you want to just run those through for our listeners here who maybe are fully spirits cocktail focused and maybe try and convince us that these are worthy of some of our kind of uh, weekly drinking unit allowances? <laughs> yeah, 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 right. I think that's a good way to put it, right? Like, have, do they earn their place in the canon? I think, like, there's certainly a case that you can make for most of the ones you just rattled off. But before I get into it, here's a question for you as the the professor of Cocktail College. Are you the dean? How does that work? What's the administrative structure at Cocktail College? I, I've never... You got a four-year university? <laughs> What's going on over there? <laughs> I don't know, Dave. I, I'll be honest with you. I never pursued higher education, so I, I don't know where my place in the structure would be. I'm, I'm certainly not the professor. I'm, I'm the person that kind of organizes things. I don't know. Okay, sure. Uh, we'll call you uh, the registrar. You're, you're listing out the courses, and then people can pursue inquiry as they see fit. That's How it, about the that? registrar. Well, here's, the, here's a question for you, though. Is there... And I shame on me. I don't know there's a if there's a hard and fast definition for what a cocktail is. Is it three or more ingredients? Is that the the going rate? What's the no? Is there one? Well, yeah, Dave. No. I mean, uh, you know, and this is you know this has become something of a running topic in in many of our recent episodes. But basically, we look back mm. to 1806. Uh, there's a definition published that said a cocktail is a stimulating liquor composed of spirits of any kind, sugar, bitters, and water. So okay. we're playing a little loose and fast here with the certainly the spirits of any kind part of that. Gotcha. Okay. But even let's say we go with that definition, certainly none of these these drinks that we were just talking about and then we're going to talk about again in a moment would fit into that. It, it, at best, I think you're maybe going to talk about them as mixed drinks, right? Like where it's kind of the lower – what do you think? Uh-oh, well, I've run afoul again Well, <laughs> you know, if, if you want to kind of – broaden your mind a little bit here for us, Dave. I think, you know, the shandy, right? You know, we might call it sure. a lager tops in the UK. So it's it's beer with a little top of lemonade, right? Or maybe that's... Lemonade, yeah. yep. So yep. assuming we're just calling it alcohol rather than spirits, you got that one. Bitters, I'm going to say that's coming from your hops. Sure, that's okay. You can make the argument, I suppose. Uh, you know, aromatic, bitter, hot. Yeah, sure. Okay. Uh, sugar is in your lemonade. In the lemonade, yeah, yeah, right. And water is one of the four constituent ingredients of beer. So, I mean, again, if we're willing to say just alcohol rather than spirits, and hey, I mean, look at the bamboo. That's a sherry cocktail. There's no distilled spirit in there. So if we're allowing that in here, I, I, again, it's it, it, it's a little bit of a stretch, but you can say it meets the criteria in a certain way. Yeah, I see what you're saying. And I feel like this is like the Potter Stewart 
like Supreme Court justice, know it when you see it definition of porn, you know, like <laughs> it's like you like, you know, that a shandy is not a cocktail, even though you could like defensively just defensively back your way into arguing as such. But like, I don't think in a room full of people, you're really going to convince anyone that uh, um, this beverage, which again is lemonade and lager, um, that's usually served in a pint glass or, or similar, you know, vessel, um, a full, you know, full size 12 ounce pour or whatever, um, is, is, a, is a cocktail by the American, you know, sort of going American definition of it. But I do think that it has merit, right? Like this is, this is something that's incredibly refreshing. It's something that beer companies have, and breweries, excuse me, have been producing and packaging even in the United States, of course, in, in the UK and in Europe, you see a lot of this stuff, um, both packaged and free poured. Uh, you don't see as much of that in the United States, although there's certainly many bars that, that will serve shandies. Rattlers uh, are sort of the cousin of the shandy. Um, you know, I think the shandy is explicitly or specifically lemonade uh, that's mixed in. Rattler is going to be a broader um, sort of additive options. You've got grapefruit, you got orange juice. It's usually, I've really never seen it with anything other than like a citrus fruit plus a beer. Um, but these are, you know, they're refreshing beverages. They're popular in other countries and other drinking cultures for a reason. And that reason is that like they, they really do fit into multiple occasions. A lot of those occasions I actually don't think are that similar to like the cocktail occasion. I think it kind of, it's one of these things that like kind of looks alike from afar, but then when you zoom in, you're like, all right, like there are different like reasons that people are drinking these. And to go back to what Bruni said back in uh, 2011, it, it offers you like an opportunity to sort of like stretch out the experience, right. To like basically like have a drinking session cocktails. I don't know, man, like sessionable is not like one of the top five traits of cocktails when I think of the category. I don't know of that many American drinkers that are seeking out cocktails for sessionable occasions. The other, another one that you mentioned is the snake bite, obviously. Um, that's, uh, is it always a specific type of beer? It's that, it's beer plus cider, right? Is the snake bite. If beer I'm plus cider to... plus generally there's blackcurrant cordial added to it. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah so snake bites never really made it that far along because cider as a category of fermentables has never made the inroads in this country as it has in the UK and, and certainly uh, other parts of, uh, of Europe. It's just not there. It's the, the sweetness is just something that I think a lot of people gravitate away from or move away from as they carry on in their drinking career. So as a result, the snake bite, I think just it had two things going against it, you know, and then, and then the third would be that like most American bars are not going to have uh, <laughs> blackberry cordial or whatever. <laughs> yeah. I think, well, I think even the fact that we have to distinguish hard cider here says everything right, about the fortunes right. in the U S whereas we would just refer to it as cider, right. And apple juice for soft. I think you, you made a great point earlier. Like these are not, the kinds of drinks you think you would be consuming at a time when you're thinking about cocktails. And I think these are all drinks that essentially I want to be able to have at a pub of an afternoon or I want to be able to get a gig when I'm 18 in the UK legally there drinking. You know what I mean? Like these are these are drinks. They're not cocktails. Um, I think it was a stretch, but I thought we should give them a little bit of a hat tip before we do move on to another very important moment in this tale of the cocktail boom. And I wonder whether actually perhaps the most apt for this show mm. in a way, other than that wonderful michelada that we're going to talk about later, I would turn your attention again to the fine pages of the New York Times in 2015, October 6th. Um, our colleague Robert Simonson there looks to have come on board by that point and probably taken over uh, Frank's tipsy beat there. And he writes about this sensation that's happening. They're described and often described as the Mexican bulldog, um, mm. otherwise known, perhaps more commonly known to people as the Corona Rita or the Beer Rita. It is, of course, the practice of taking a frozen margarita turning a Mexican beer or a beer, but generally a Mexican beer 
inside that. And then the wonderful laws of physics dictating that when you drink it with a straw, as you empty some of that mixture, more of the beer goes into the glass. And I think that when we're talking about actual cocktails and mixed drinks, this one feels a lot more apt for me. I think the drinking occasions are still definitely geared toward brunch, and that's where our mindset might be, or kind of like a, a yeah, boozy like Sunday. Within eyesight of like a body of water. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Right? Yeah, right. <laughs> and I, I want to discuss the, the Mexican or the bulldog phenomenon, because it stretches back earlier than that. But notably, I was reading Simonson's article there, and... This has evolved to this trend where the bulldog actually becomes inverted in many bars around New York City and you're getting cans with those miniature kind of 50 milliliter bottles of spirits poured into them. Again, as a drinks writer, I can see why this trend takes off like that. It looks cool. It's probably at the advent of Instagram or just before, but certainly social media is in full form. And... It's something different. And and also, I tried to research this. I don't think there's actually any negative connotations or offensive connotation from the name Mexican Bulldog. I really hope not. But in terms of like a catchy name that is associated with a cocktail or a category of drinks, that's always useful. And that seems to be the case here, right, as well. Like a shandy is whatever, but a Mexican bulldog feels like something, feels like something you've composed. <laughs> right. I I would argue that like Mexican bulldog is a way cooler sounding cocktail than what these actually are. Uh, you yeah. know, like if Mexican bulldog sounds like a very legitimate, like canonical cocktail. And what you get is kind of this hacky sort of low brow, I suppose, because you're often seeing these maybe in I know they have since become, you know, higher brow and people do twists on them, but like this is not really associated with in the same sort of vein as as your uh, as your actual your paper planes, your uh, your Sazeracs, your thing, <laughs> you know, the, the actual cocktail cannon. Sounds like it could be, though. Yeah, I think that's really I mean, obviously, like the visual gimmick is incredible, right? With Coronitas or Buranita, Mexican Bulldogs, whatever you want to call them. Um the mini the mini beer bottle um, is you know sort of acts as a beacon to fellow drinkers. There's the obvious appeal of sort of like oh I want one of those right. That's sort of I think tiki drinks and more broadly um, you know cocktail garnishes serve that purpose in cocktails in a way that beer does beer has no such thing. That's not, it doesn't really exist in that way. So again, like you could be drinking a shandy and like people just look at it. It's like, Oh, that's like a lighter than normal beer. Right? <laughs> he must be drinking a light lager or whatever. Right. Um, maybe there's ice in it. Um, but whatever, it's not immediately recognizable as something different and something sort of special. So I think that is one of the things that the Mexican bulldog absolutely has going for it. As you say, I think American drinkers, we we see thirst for like high-low combinations, right? Like high-end plus low-end sort of mashups, uh, as it were. And I think that like this really like scratches that itch in a way that Shandy's don't. I'd also make the point that Shandy, Radler, these are not familiar words, especially not, you know, a decade ago to your mainstream, your average drinker. I think that, that that sparks two really interesting thoughts for me. One is something that's come up on this show before, and I think maybe speaks to where we are in this period. So between 2013 and 2015, I wonder whether we've arrived at a kind of third wave of the cocktail renaissance or the, the third evolution of that. So we see... Classic cocktails return in earnest in, you know, 1999, 2000, Milk and Honey. Obviously, a lot of great people did great work before that. But we're turning to then stirred spirit forward classics, mm. things taken very seriously. Then you're you're discovering your Vucarets, your Sazeracs, you know, boozy drinks that that you really can't knock back too many of them, right? It's, you know, you know you're sipping on these drinks. And then... The bar world takes that very seriously. And I think our friend William Elliott from Maison Premier was talking about this when we did the Daiquiri episode, that bartenders were really taking that style of bartending and their mustache wax and their, and their you know, their waistcoats and their suspenders really seriously. Right. 
that there becomes a reaction that's kind of like, no, we want to do shaken drinks and the, the daiquiri can be something that can be elevated and can be an art form. And so I want to say that's maybe the second phase there. And I'm going to lump Tiki in there too, because again, I think people looking back and being like, wow, look at the work Don the Beachcomber did and all this stuff. Like right. it's a lot more involved than we realize when we think of, you know, Trader Vic's or whatnot and, and these Tiki chains. And then you get to this crossover point where it's like these things ostensibly look like cocktails. They're definitely fully got their hair down. You know, all the buttons on the shirt are undone. They're just chilling. They're relaxing. They're served in a in a cocktail glass. So it looks like you're part of that movement, but you're drinking likely a very overly sweet frozen margarita with beer <laughs> dumped into it. And also that just kind of looks like Hey, look at me! You know, I'm, I'm. You know, it's it's kind of a fuck it drink, right? There's a peacocking. <laughs> yeah, there's it's fuck yeah. it, and there's also peacocking, right? Like it's drawing attention to yourself. It's doing a gimmick, but it's doing it on your own terms. It's yeah, it's like I'm. This is rejection, but also an implicit synthesis of everything that's come before. Uh, yeah, that absolutely tracks for me. I think that the spectacle of it is a dramatic part of the Mexican bulldog or a significant part of the Mexican bulldog's appeal. I got one more question here for you with, with your tap lines head on for a second, because another thing that I think might be a part of this phenomenon too is also just, you know, Mexican culture. You know, mm. the margarita is long established as the, the nation's favorite cocktail, right? I would argue that probably Mexican food is the nation's favorite. I don't know whether there's studies on that, but, you know, just the, you know, the rise in appreciation of that and also the appreciation of there are different styles beyond like Tex-Mex, like actual authentic Mexican food. Right, right. But with your tap lines head on for a second, and, and I'm going to ask you to be kind of succinct with this one or kind of quick, but what's the influence Corona has on this? Because the very fact that one of the names for this is Corona Rita, like where is Corona in the American drinking public's mind and hearts in 2015 or so, or maybe a little bit earlier? Yeah, that's a big thing. I mean, Corona is sort of known throughout the beer industry as this phenomenon that hit hard in the 80s and just never stopped hitting hard. Um, it's one of the only brands that has defied, you know, decade long trends of, you know, s uh, cyclical, um, you know, popularity, ebb and flow of beer brands. It's, it's, you know, infamous if you're competing with it or, uh, uh, beloved if it happens to be your brand over at Con Constellation Brands, but it, it just is, it represents to the American drinker, it represents, you know, sort of this getaway, this paradise, this, this break from the ordinary, the company, uh, in the United States, again, that's Constellation Brands, uh, internationally it's Grupo Modelo, which is acquired in 2013 by Anheuser-Busch InBev and they divest to Constellation. Um, the company has invested, you know, untold millions of dollars in marketing that appeal. Um, but it nevertheless is very powerful, uh, and it, and it continues to be in 2015, you know, midway through last decade, whenever you want to put a point on it, it would have been no different. That is pre the rise of Modelo Especial, which was of course in this country and was being sold, um, and was doing great volume, but had yet to hit the stride that we now see it has gotten full canter to, uh, in 2023, but you know, you saw a little bit of a lift for Tecate. You saw other Mexican lagers like Victory, like Pacifico, um, start to gain traction as more interesting or offbeat, you know, sort of low-end options at uh, self-styled dive bars than PBR was, right? You couldn't just serve PBR, but, like, what if we had Tallboys at Tecate instead or 19.2s at Tecate, right? So, like, yeah, I do think that, that that's a groundswell that can only have helped the Mexican bulldog. Mm -hmm. And so I, I I did a little dive there into, you know, I was, you know, reading Simonson's piece from 2015. Uh, I think he quotes Gabriel Orta from um, Broken Shaker in Miami at the time saying that like, this is a phenomenon. Mexican bulldogs are something you see in Mexico and Cancun. And I, I was trying to figure out like, where does this term first get coined? If you look at Google Trends, which is always a good place to start, there's a massive spike for all three, you know, Mexican Bulldog, Corona Rita, and Beer Rita. 
in 2004. I can't mm. find the article that 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 kind of inspires that spike in interest. So I'd love for if any of our listeners are aware of that, please reach out to him at vinepair.com, podcast at vinepair.com, because really fascinated by that. But then we see a second spike in around 2011. And when I was doing a bit of a deep dive on that, I did encounter, not in Cancun, but in Cabo, this little restaurant that appears to still be around and it's called Morrow's Shrimp House. And they, I think they have a video on YouTube from 2011, I want to say, that's basically their, it's called Challenge the Bulldog. And they have this thing, I, you know, I'm going to read some of the, the I'm going to read some of the copy from the website to you here because it's kind of, and you know, like <laughs> no shade thrown here. Um, it's, it's just very interesting, very kind of early odds here. So it's like our specialty house drink is a must try that many have challenged. Many have attempted the record and many have failed. The drink is delicious. Mexican lemonade with tequila, lemonade and beer it tastes like mother's milk, as they say. They go down like water. Come taste your strength for the record, boys and girls. They have, you know, that's kind of dodgy, but they have this this challenge on how many Mexican bulldogs you can drink. And, the, and they do have the, the leaders here on the website as well. Dana Bryan and Jenny Gullickson from Mandan, North Dakota, who seemingly did 13 bulldogs in eight hours and 45 minutes. I don't know when the record is from. But all of which is to say, if you do some Googling around this, there's quite a few like posts on the internet being like, how do we recreate the bulldog from Morrow's? And I'm not saying oh, that the drink originates there, but yeah, I yeah. do wonder whether, you know, this is a tourist spot. It helps popularize it. People bring it back to the US. People start asking for it. And then it becomes a trend as such. And and, you know, that video is up in 2011, which tracks with the Google search trend data. And then cementing the trend, Dave, I'm going to let you introduce it, but it's one of my favorite things to explore in the world, just to, 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 to cap off the corona readers here. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? Well, I think it's time to turn our attention to uh, the, the Michelada man, right? Is that what you're talking about? I was actually talking about our friend, <laughs> our friend Alexander K. Miller. Oh, this shit. Oh, my God. Yeah, dude, you did uh, human's work researching this, and you found... <laughs> I love this, actually. Uh, you found uh, the dude who has a bunch of patents for various sort of, like, brackets, devices, I suppose, is, like, sort of a catch-all term for them, to position... Inverted bottle holders. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, there you go. For positioning, like, little beer bottles, like, for example, the mini Coronas, the Coronitas, in, like, glassware, in, like, other drinking receptacles. I did not know that this dude... Ex I knew those things <laughs> existed. I did not know this guy existed. Obviously, someone had to invent them, but I did not know him by name. Uh, it's a thing. You found him. Do you know him? You don't know him. I don't. I need to reach out to this guy. Get him on the around pod. a dozen different patents, all filed <laughs> around 2013, which I think really cements this trend of like, okay, this is when the beer eater, the corona eater, that's when this right. is really taken off, right? Like somewhere between 2011 and 2015, when it makes the times, like that's, that's, that's perfect. The Times usually picks up on things, you know, maybe a little late. Although Robert Simonson, you know, in fairness, is is generally ahead of the Times when it comes to cocktails and things. But such a trend like that. So, yeah, that is the period. That's firmly the period that we're in. Um, folks, I love go that check you it went, out. I love that you went and found <laughs> this dude's... How many patents is it? How many total is it? Do I believe know? it's around a dozen. They're all different as well. <laughs> they, 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 they lead into different receptacles. And look... If anyone out there is sniffing an opportunity, it looks like the expiration is going to take place in around eight years' time. So, you know, hold your horses there. And, you know. Oh, they're going to enter the public domain? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. If you want to, you know. I, no, I just always found that fascinating. Like, how can this drink exist before that device does? Apparently it does, but the device really does help. So what's interesting also about, the, about Miller's devices is you typically see this type of item sold by or just given away by the beer company um, as a promotional item, you know, as, as sort of swag that they give out um, to accounts. Um, 
But I don't know how much of these turn out to be. I forget how many of these I've ever seen that are branded with Corona or branded with a beer brand. And one of the reasons for that may be that it encourages the type of consumption that brands tend to shy away from a little bit more where you're looking at, you know, sort of mixing spirits and beer. You're looking at drinking volume. Uh, Shout out to the folks from North Dakota who hold the record at Morrow's. 13 <laughs> Mexican Bulldogs in eight, in eight hours and 45 minutes is what? That's, I mean, 1.15 per hour or something along those lines. I can't quite that's do the math. Moment, but yeah, uh, it, it's better than decent, man. I don't know what they're what they're up to in, in North Dakota, but that's uh, that they were cutting loose in Mexico. That's for sure. So yeah, like you could see also like how there's an opportunity there because like unlike bar umbrellas or bar mats or whatever, there, there's no real market for it because the companies will just give it out as promotional. Um, Miller maybe carves in Miller, the guy, not Miller, the brand carves in and, uh, and locks himself up a few patents here. So yeah, just having a little look here and doing some live journalism as, as we're recording. And it seems like um, his holdings <laughs> company is based in Dallas, Texas. So that really does track as well. You know, like this guy definitely went tomorrow's. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this guy has been vacationing there for a couple of years, and he notices that during those eight-hour Mexican bulldog thons sometimes the Corona bottle will fall out of the glass. <laughs> there's a market. There's a market opportunity here. Yeah, he's he's ah <laughs> uh, see, but oh man, is that colonizing Mexican bulldogs? My God, that's a that's a topic for a different day. I couldn't I couldn't even profess to have the expertise necessary to go down that road, Tim. Yeah, and and, and just looking at the clock here and the impending chat on the on the Michelada, we will have to return to that one on a different day. But the of course, you know, we, we've previewed it a couple of times, Dave, and I. I think that, you know, maybe we've convinced ourselves here that the the the, the Corona Rita or whatnot, the Mexican Bulldog is it's a bona fide cocktail in a way, or it's two it's a cocktail and a beer drunk together, essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The Michelada, though, it's the classic, and it's the one that really is close to my heart. And I think, you know, if we ever are to return to a beer cocktail on this show. That will be the one, and I'm sure we'll be able to, you know, find, you know, I, I've interviewed some great sources, um, you know, actually from Mexico back in the day. The, the, the Michelada, something that I discovered through friends there and whatnot is like, it's really not what we think it is. And it's actually a whole category of drinks that can, mm. they can contain hot sauce, but they generally don't traditionally. It's basically just like lime or salt or some lemon juice or whatnot, but then you can get you know, Worcestershire sauce in there, Maggi sauce, um, all kinds of different stuff. So to kick, you know, for us to, to finish this part of the show, Dave, just wanted to get your own take. What's your preferred preparation on a michelada if you're if, if that's what you're feeling uh, on any given time of the day? Of course. I'm a, I'm a little baby is the thing. You have to understand when it comes to spice, I can't, I have the, I have the stomach of a child. Uh, I can't handle it. I have acid reflux. I have GERD. Uh, gas. I don't even know what this stands for. Listeners, if you know, you know it's a it's a, a gastrointestinal ailment. Uh, so the Michelada is not my beverage of choice. I don't drink Bloody Marys. I don't really drink like the Red Snappers. Anything along these lines. I do a. It is not something I seek out. In other words, but I do occasionally. Um, you know, have one if I'm feeling sporty and I have nothing to do later that day. Uh, and. Uh, I am bound by the constraints of, of spice level. So I'm shying away from hot sauce. I'm shying away from, um, you know, any sort of like if they're, if they're doing anything with pepper that's, uh, added to the mixture, sliced up as a garnish, I tell them to hold that because there's really no need. I will not be (laughs) enjoying it. Um, so I'm a lame spec. This is sad and I'm embarrassed having listened to cocktail college for, for all these episodes. I wish I had a better spec for you, but I'm I can't handle it. <laughs> you just you just Michelada hold everything. I'll just take the cold yeah, water. Right. Can you right? Can you pour them into uh, uh, severed vessels so I can mix them as I need to? Right? Oh, how embarrassing! <laughs> well, I'll share one today. I, I do remember when, and this is from an article ages ago, and I do remember kind of. Um, re- encountering a lot of problems researching this because with, with such drinks, you know, there's different names for it in different regions or the same name means different things depending on where right. you are. Right. Like it's, it's the classic. 
Um, but I think the one commonly referred to as the, the Michelada um, Cubana, the Cuban Michelada would be, um, I'm going to share this one. It's a preferred recipe of mine. This is what I go to at home if I'm ever feeling in the mood. One bottle of Mexican lager. These days I do like a Modelo Especial. One lime, half an ounce of Maggi sauce, half an ounce of Worcestershire sauce, half an ounce of Valentina hot sauce, which I think is not my favorite hot sauce, but it's perfect for this. And a little salt and chili powder mixed for your glass. Mix everything together in the glass once you've, you know, added your salt and whatnot. And uh, and, and this is why we normally let the guests do the recipes, because this is not professional at all. But yeah, just mix it all in the glass, add it all together. That's a wonderful, <laughs> uh, a, a wonderful michelada, folks. Um, <laughs> but Dave... Any final thoughts on, on beer cocktails or, or, or the so-called beer cocktail boom before we hit you with our quick hit questions to finish the show? I think the the only thing I would leave listeners with is that like the category or like the pseudo segment of beverages isn't like invalid. I think there's like a time and a place for it. Basically, all of these drinks that we talk about, the Shandy, the Rattler, you know, the, the Snake Bite um, the, uh, the half and half and so on. I think the problem just becomes for this, you know, for this narrative or for this, this type of beverage, this, the pseudo segment becomes, uh, where, you know, it gets taken up as the next big thing rather than just an interesting aspect of, uh, drinking culture that maybe, could stand to have a little bit more representation in the American, you know, sort of bar and the American drinking zeitgeist. It's not that those aren't great. It's just that they never, I don't think really became what, uh, what the companies themselves or what the industry, uh, you know, really hoped it would be uh, in the United States. And I think the mismatch between expectations and reality there is why it's sort of a funnier thing to consider in hindsight. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is this is not a tale about beer cocktails. This is a tale about drinking trends, real or otherwise, and and the media sausage and how it gets made. Media, I think media hubris. I think that's what we're talking about here. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and we're all guilty. So with that, <laughs> Dave. Let's dive into our, our our weekly recurring questions here, starting as we do, as is normal. With question number one, what style or category of spirit typically enjoys the most real estate on your home back bar? I've been preparing for this. I knew these were coming. I'm ready. Uh, certainly bourbon. Um, I uh, Bourbon or more broadly, um, you know, an American whiskey uh, of some kind. It's the most sort of aligned with my palate. Uh, I think I grew up, uh, grew up, I mean, I'm 35. I also didn't start drinking bourbon seriously or even semi-seriously until whatever, 10 to 12 years ago. But it's something that I just, I return to again and again, because it, it seems like it is the most versatile for the limited range of drinks, uh, that I'm capable of making. Nice. Nice. Any, any, any particular favorite you're, you're, you're reaching for at the moment at home? Yeah, I, I always, and I probably shouldn't do that on this podcast because either I will get yelled at or uh, uh, people will go out and buy it and drive the price up and make it not <laughs> fucking affordable anymore. So no one, no one go do this. But uh, uh, Evan Williams Bottled and Bond, I feel like, is just a great value bourbon for the price. I know that's not the sexiest answer. That's um, great. But I think it's a really, really solid bourbon. And it's, I mean, I have a handle of it downstairs right now this is also you can tell i'm a beer guy i buy for volume i only buy shit in <laughs> handles you know <laughs> but yeah Handle yeah yeah evan williams white label just yeah waiting for 601 p.m that's correct <laughs> um question number two which ingredient or tool do you believe to be the most undervalued in an amateur bartender's arsenal i think a Again, I'm out of my depth here, but what I have found to add the most to like cocktails that I make at home, that is also the easiest for me to add to those cocktails. Um, so in other words, I guess the, you know, a metric you could use is sort of the best bang for buck in terms of effort to, you know, outcome 
for me from my palate is adding, you know, citrus zest to cocktails. And so, um, getting a zester or even getting just a norm, like it doesn't even have to be from a cocktail supply store. Like, though I certainly encourage it because it's easy to get and they're not expensive, but like even just getting like a, a peeler from like a bed, bath and beyond and like keeping that, you know, by your citrus. Um, I think like that's for me been, and again, like I'm not, no one's listening to this because they expect pearls of wisdom here. I hope, and I hope I'm not disappointing you too much, but I think like for, for an amateur, a genuine amateur like myself, that's been a real, that's unlocked like a, a new level for me, uh, in terms mm-hmm. of home bartending. Nice. Nice. And this one may be aimed at those who are who are looking to get into our side of things rather than the the service side of things here. Um, what's the most important piece of advice you've received while working in this industry? I thought about this a lot, and I again I knew it was coming, and I think I would have to go with it's something about the beer industry, um, but I think it applies to what you do here at Cocktail College. I also think it applies to the media industry, and it was a longtime beer industry veteran whose name was, uh, is Mike Matero. He, he may be listening or maybe will at some point. And he, uh, told me once that something along the lines, this is not a direct quote, but something along the lines of like what you're buying when you buy beer is the aluminum and the shipping costs and the excise tax. The liquid inside is basically free, right? This is obviously, it's not free, but like in terms of economies of scale, it is a negligible amount of cost to the company. You're paying for everything else. And the reason I think that that's, you know, this whether it's advice or it's wisdom or, or you know, whatever, um, the reason I, I think it's so important is because it has always been like really difficult, I think, for American drinkers to assess, or at least it has been for me, and I, and I know other people who struggle with it, to understand like where alcohol is meant to sort of fit in with their life or their lifestyle. Right. And like the, you know, how much veneration are we supposed to treat this thing with versus how much of it is just a commodity or, or, um, you know, something that is a fact of life, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I think like it grounds me when I think about beer or even when I think about spirits, uh, or wine, um, in terms of like thinking of this thing as, yeah, this is, it sits at the middle of, or, you know, at the, at the border of sort of commodity and, and specialty or or artisanal item. And it really depends on what you bring to it, um, to sort of like be like your store of value in that thing. You know, like for, for some people, um, they're spending all their time on Facebook or wherever people are selling secondhand bourbon these days. Uh, you know, jacking up the price of the Blantons I used to conveniently get at any liquor store for 40 bucks or whatever, right? That's their get in. They're projecting a lot of value on it. I think that those people might benefit from this type of advice. I think it's also, um, it's also, you know, something that I think just is good context generally for thinking about the way the industry works. Um, things are never going to be as special to the companies producing them for profit as they are to uh, the drinkers who are enjoying them for pleasure. Nice, nice. Wise words there. I think I, I think that really does echo the sentiment. I forget which guest it was, but said something very similar about the bar experience, which is like the drink is free. You're mm. paying for everything else, mm. right? Yep. And, 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 and but in in an entirely positive way, in terms in that sense, like. You gotta treasure the experience, or they were actually saying it from more of a like a server or a bartender's point of view that like what you're there to do. Yeah, you're there to make good drinks, but that should be expected. Actually, what you're getting paid for is everything else, whether mm. that's keeping a tidy station or being friendly, being cordial, being that person who knows when to speak and when to sort of pull back a bit and all that kind of thing too, right? Like that's it's yep. why we call it the service industry. And so like, I don't know, I, it, that's maybe the inverse of what you were saying. I don't know, but like well, very- Well, right, because, I'm, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. I'm coming at it from the media industry, of course, yeah. it's much more cynical and jaded. <laughs> but No, no service yeah. here, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> everything just everything's free you know that's great that's right um dave penultimate question for you here today if you could only visit one last bar in your life what would it be so i was gonna say 
Shulbreds, which was a bar uh, in the East Village of Manhattan that closed, gosh, at this point, probably five, six years ago. Um, it was a bar in Little Poland, uh, Little Ukraine, I suppose, depending on where you draw the line. And it had a camp or it had a, excuse me, a fireplace and it was extremely cozy. But I think the cozier bar, the one that really is the definitive one for me um, and, and has the benefit of still being open um, is Henry Public, which is just down the street from a bar that I know is very near and dear to, to your heart uh, and many others, uh, Long Island Bar, is also like a great bar that I love going to. The reason I like Henry Public uh, is not because they make fantastic drinks. I think their drinks are very serviceable. I don't think they are standout cocktails, although I would absolutely put them above average. Um, they have the, they have the detriment of having to be neighbors with Long Island Bar, which is probably one of the best cocktail <laughs> bars in the city. Uh, but you know their their drinks are good. Um, but I've spent afternoons there. I used to live in that neighborhood. I've spent afternoons there that the hours just sort of while away, and it becomes the center of the universe, and you feel like you're the you and the other people in the bar with you are the only, you know, the only people that matter. Uh, and the only thing that's happening is, is happening right there. And I think that that's just a transcendent experience that all of all great bars, whether they're beer bars, cocktail bars, uh, wine bars. Um, I think that that's where sort of like greatness and like, you know, transcendence and being more valuable than the sum of their parts. I think that that's what they all share. Um, and for me that, that bar is Henry public. Amazing. Yeah. Wonderful little little stretch of of road there or section of the city there for drinking yeah. options. It really you really are spoiled for choice. Yeah, no kidding. Um, nice. All right then, Dave. Final question for you here today. If you knew that the next drink if you knew that the next cocktail you drank, sorry, was gonna be your last, what would you order or make? I was gonna I was gonna say anything groany because I knew that would trigger you as and and all other cocktail college uh, listeners who have heard ad nauseum about the beverage. Uh, <laughs> but uh, no, I mean for me it would be a Boulevardier um, in the in the same I think general family. Um, but you know it, it's just a drink for me that I think just has a lot of depth for the type of amateur-ish palette that I bring to cocktails, um, but also is really pretty reliably easy to make. Um, so I don't ever feel nervous about ordering it, um, which is a real thing. I know not so much on this show, but like you, everyone has had the experience of like walking in and like ordering something and like you just see the panic in the bartender's eyes. And you're like, Oh no, like I, I'm about to get something insane. <laughs> so I like the whole part of the reason I, it's just such a tried and true stalwart for me is because I just, I'm relatively certain that a bartender, no matter where I am, can back their way into making a decent one. Mm -hmm. And that I, I place a premium on that type of, <laughs> on that type of reliability. <laughs> and look, if they can't, chances are they definitely have the ingredients and you can, you right, know, <laughs> right. We can we'll shepherd get them. Together. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, Dave, you know, Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, a true tap lines and cocktail college crossover, I think, you know, and for those listening and for those who maybe aren't that familiar as well with tap lines, a shame on you because it's been in the cocktail college feed. It was, <laughs> it was right there, folks, for you to get a, a sneak preview of it after it first launched. But also, you know, to me, this did feel like a genuine cocktail college episode, but also a, a tap lines in the way that you guys explore culture there's there's obviously quite often a kind of business lens, business perspective, but I love the way that you're always able to bring that again back to culture and what's happening. It's uh, it's economics, right? Essentially, at the end of the day, it's everything coming together, what's going on, socioeconomics. And uh, I, I love that you've been able to bring that particular brand uh, of podcast entertainment to the Cocktail College feed today. So, Dave, thank you very much, listeners. Go out there and check it out. It's Tap Lines. It's produced by the same people here. It's Vine Pair. It's Darby Seaside, the producer. Um, Dave, any final words for us today? You do me a great honor, my friend. Thanks for having me on the show. And uh, 
I think the only question we left unanswered that we'll have to do, well, of course, besides the Michelada, which is an episode unto itself, but we'll have to have you back on uh, on tap lines or maybe another joint episode because we got to figure out what kind of beer cocktail can you make with Shock Top? Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, and we didn't even get into Kiza and Desperados. Part two, folks, coming sometime in the future to a couple of feeds near you. Dave, ciao. See ya. Cheers. Okay, I know what you're thinking, folks. That was a lot of info. But here's the good news. Every single episode of Vinepair's Cocktail College is published on vinepair.com as a transcript. So you can check it out there all over again. If you enjoy listening to the show anywhere near as much as we enjoy making it, go ahead and hit subscribe. And please leave a rating or review wherever you get your podcasts whether that's Apple, Spotify, or Stitcher. And please tell your friends. Now for the credits. Cocktail College is recorded in New York City and produced by myself and Darby Seaside, who also composed our awesome theme music. Just give that a listen, folks. I also want to give a huge shout out to everyone on the Vinepair team, especially co-founders Adam Teeter and Josh Mallon, editor-in-chief Joanna Sherino, and art director Daniel Grinberg, who designed our killer logo. Finally, thank you, listener, for making it this far and for giving this whole thing a purpose. Until next time. <laughs>